And now if you all turn in your Bibles to that classic Advent passage, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 19 through 22. Now Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she called the boy Ichabod saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. We are in the Old Testament, which while consisting of a few different literary genre we are in. The bulk of the Old Testament, I would say, is written in what is called historical narrative. That is, it is protracted sometimes or lengthier than uh, what we're used to, certainly in the New Testament, of stories that certainly bring us into the history of God's people. But within that history, there is theology that is completely entwined and wrapped up in it. And that is more significant than the history. The history itself is simply a medium through which that theology and what God wants us to know and understand is going to be revealed. The Old Testament is more challenging to teach through than the New Testament, which I suppose is one reason, I hate to say it, but I believe it is true, why it's largely ignored from the pulpits of the Christian church. Oh, people, preachers like to dip into the Old Testament and grab favorite passages here and there and pull them out of their history and use them however they will, sometimes appropriately, sometimes totally inappropriately, devoid of their context and original intent and meaning. So the challenge in teaching the Old Testament is to understand that there is history, but there is theology. And while there is meaning to the people of the day in which it is occurring, it is also pointing forward, even as Jesus said, when he was on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, when he took out, or beginning with the scriptures, that is the Katuvim, the writings, the Navim, the prophets, he began to explain to the disciples who didn't know it was him, all about himself from the Old Testament. So we want to always start with the particular, meaning the historical context, that's going to help us keep our bearings and not get so far afield as to become ludicrous. But then we want to expand it and we want to broaden it so that we can see both what are the future repercussions, meaning not just about Christ, but even to present day. Because God didn't put all this in the Old Testament so that we would sit there and go, oh, it's time to read through the Bible again. Uh, let's go to Matthew and begin there. And just skip it entirely. We want to begin, and we are going to begin this morning with the particular. And then I am going to go broad as I am talking about certain elements of the theology that is wrapped up there. And then toward the end, I'm going to come back down to the particular 
from the particular to the broad to the particular, and that will help us stay anchored as well as getting modern day application or at least touch points with what is going on theologically in the Old Testament. Perfectly clear? (laughs) Okay, let's pray and go home. All right. Israel, in the particular, in the immediate context, in the history that we've been talking about for several weeks now, actually uh, this is the eighth message in Samuel, so there are seven previous ones, all of which are continuous, and you can obtain those online, by the way, at our website. Israel is under God's loving, that doesn't mean easy or pleasurable, but his loving discipline, once again, due largely in the context to poor leadership, to poor civic, meaning the community, and spiritual leadership, specifically of Eli, who was the high priest, and as the high priest, he was basically the ruling authority, being in a a theocracy where God himself is king, and he's speaking through prophets and other people that he set out to, to keep a peaceful community. But he, of course, was also the spiritual leader. And then his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests, Eli the high priest. The reason I mention this is not just to bore you with detail, but to establish the fact that in any given situation in, in, in our time or past times or even future times concerning the world and concerning the world in which we live or they lived or anybody else lived, it is never just this or this as being an issue or situation, it is all interwoven so that you have the civic considerations and the spiritual considerations, all of which are tightly wound together. Let me illustrate. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh has had a new Pharaoh now who didn't know who Joseph was and all that when he was a good, good Pharaoh. And now we have a schnook Pharaoh who's put Israel in bondage and has them as slaves. And God says to Moses, it's time for you to take all of my people and leave and go out into the wilderness to worship me. Now go and tell Pharaoh that. (laughs) That's going to work well if you know the story. So through this protracted story, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God is commanding us to go worship and we have, we have to obey him. We can't. And Mo, Pharaoh says, of course, yeah, no, you're not going to see that happen. So he said, well, God says that if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And it's not real pleasant. And Pharaoh says, yeah. And of course, God goes, and Pharaoh goes, ah, uncle, okay. We go through this now through ten different plagues, with Pharaoh getting closer and closer and closer to finally saying, okay, go, do it the way you want to do it, instead of all these other options that he kept offering as God was increasing the heat. I'm just going to jump into one, which is pretty much at random. It's about midway through the plagues, I think, and it's the plague of frogs. Now, that might not seem too consequential. A plague of frogs, I mean, big deal. Okay, you go outside, there's frogs all over. Oh, you have no idea. No. We can't imagine because we're talking about a supernatural plague where the frogs were so abundant 
that they were everywhere, including inside the house, inside the cooking utensils. You go to take a bowl out to make some bread, and there's frogs in there, and maybe they're in various states of repair, so to speak. And the smell starts as they start dying, and all the things that go with that, to where even Pharaoh finally says, okay, look, Moses, go, go to your God and tell him, all right, if he just releases this plague, then come back to me and we'll work things out. So Moses does, God does, he goes back to Pharaoh, and here's what we read in verse 15 of Exodus 8. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, this is so us. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he did not listen to Moses as the Lord had said. And so the continuing plagues got worse and worse and worse. It's not wise to go toe-to-toe with the creator of the universe. The odds are stacked against you. Well, in 1 Samuel, oh, by the way, so my point in mentioning that is that, is that Egypt had a national, a civic, if you will, catastrophe, crisis on their hands. But it wasn't just from poor leadership or poor this or poor that. It was a spiritual issue that Pharaoh was refusing to see, to admit to, and finally remedy it by coming into a place where God wanted him to be. And throughout the history of the world, national problems, state problems, local problems... We can sit there and point fingers at people and bad leadership and everything else, all of which is true, but at the end of the day, there is that spiritual component, and if that is not addressed, everything else is little more than rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. You've heard that little cliche. So in 1 Samuel, the loving discipline of the Lord, civic but spiritual, happened to take shape. And the national catastrophe is upon them, not once, but twice, with two wars absolutely decimating the ranks of Israel's mighty army. And they lost thousands and thousands of their soldiers. This is all review. The national, the political, and the civic calamities. Again, there's no distinction between three of those three arenas in which God's people live and move and have their being were designed to turn God's people around, turning them back to their loving leader and king. Instead, in 1 Samuel, their solution revolved around national and civic solutions. What they needed was a spiritual solution. What they needed was the abiding presence of God himself. Instead of saying, let's get right with the Heavenly Father, they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was only the symbol of God's presence. It was not God's presence. Their solution was to obtain the symbol. A symbol of God's presence, you see, can be taken by force. You can have human control over that. His presence, on the other hand, only comes about by repenting. 
by obeying and by living under his authority. They go, yeah, nah, let's just snatch the symbol and make ourselves feel good about our spiritual heritage, about our relationship to the living God. That is not a strategy that is passe. And since it is always easier to see the splinter in somebody else's eye instead of the beam in our own eyes, let me just jump to modern day to try and illustrate something. So let's just think of the stars of pop culture, past and present. Their music is wretched, the lyrics violent, their themes are degrading, and their morality from the pit of hell. Of course, there are exceptions. But I believe that in even their heart of hearts, they know, they honestly know that they are vile. That's what the Bible and anthropology tells me. You see, a civilization has never been discovered. I don't know if you realize this. There has never been a by civilization, I mean just a people group. It can be a very small population, but totally isolated, have never seen anybody else outside their particular little, little uh, area of the world in which they are in, or the jungle, or whatever it happens to be. There has never been a civilization or people group discovered that has no moral codes. In other words, laws. Now, that doesn't mean that they're codified like ours are or that they're enacted in the same way. But there is a chieftain or a shaman or a witch doctor who is the ruling authority. And there are moral codes that you will live by in the community if you want to live peaceably in the community. And there are punishments or discipline if you violate those particular things. And the basics of those laws, this is across the population of civilization and people groups. The focus and the basis of those laws amazingly center on three things. All in common. One is the value of life with various rules, laws, regulations, or moral codes, whatever, concerning taking the life of somebody. Secondly, on the necessity of a family structure. There's ways that you go about when you're going to take a wife. Now, they may be able to take 20 wives, but there is a protocol by which you will follow and adhere for the sake of the peace within the community, and here's how it will be done. But there is a given structure of family. And thirdly, there is some form of worship. Now, we're not talking about worship of the living God, the creator of the universe, but there is a form of worship. You look at some of the most reprehensible entertainers, past and present, and they know what they are. Because according to the inspired, infallible, and inerrant authoritative word of God in Romans chapter 1, what can be known about God that he is creator and you aren't, that God has, been, God has made himself clear. Now, how does that person deal with such things? Well, there's all kinds of ways. But just one, for the, again, the sake of keeping the illustration flowing here, a common band-aid is to escape that reality of what they know to be true by joining themselves to maybe an important or several important even virtuous symbols 
For example, I'm going to go get myself a gigantic spiritual symbol, preferably a 20-carat gold cross the size of a chandelier dangling from a big gold toe chain around my nasty neck. And then maybe strategically I'll even throw in a couple of, of, of well-placed tats on my body that reflect some kind of religious sentiment or illusion. And when I do this, for myself, I'm chilling in the best of both worlds. In First Samuel, the ark was the important symbol. It was the visible reminder of God's presence, of His abiding presence. Care was part and parcel of God's abiding presence and His concern for His people. His meeting with them through a visible manifestation of His glory. All of that is bound up in that symbol. Sometimes God's manifestation of His glory, of His abiding presence with them, might be a pillar of fire, as in by night has happened. Or a cloud by day. Or perhaps it came by, by somebody going to a burning bush and having a m- mysterious visitation by God. Or it came through angelic or angels visiting. And sometimes through dreams or vision or prophetic words. And we know that all of the hallowed rites and all of the rituals of the sacrificial system together called Judaism were but shadows of the good things to come, so says the writer of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. They were symbols that were pregnant with meaning and promise of a future day of consummate hope secured not by God's abiding presence in symbols, but by the substance of of God's abiding presence in flesh and blood as Emmanuel, God with us. And when God came as God with us in the flesh, in John chapter 10, verse 10, He said, I came to give you life and to give it more abundant. But the message and practice of His abiding presence, and all that that means for capital L-I-F-E, didn't start with Christmas. It began in the very opening books of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So let me throw some thoughts out here. If God came only, by the way, if you didn't notice, we're going to the broad. If God came only to secure our eternity. I contend, I could, honestly, I could be wrong, but I contend that he did not need to spend but a few moments on earth. The operative word there being did not need to. Think about it. If Emmanuel, God with us, if his incarnation came, let's say, not as a baby from birth, but as an adult, and then he lived and stuck around here for I don't know, 24, 48, 72 hours. I don't, it doesn't really matter. But he hung around for a very short time as God come to earth. But in that time, goes to the cross, propitiating God's anger against your sin and mine. And then rose from the dead, being himself sinless. He had to. And then ascending back to his heavenly abode, that could have been the last time anyone would ever see or hear from him again. Until, of course, he returns 
the second time. I see no reason why eternal life would be compromised for the believer in any way if that's the way it went down. Heaven would still be to those who believe. Salvation would still be entirely by faith. But a glory of Advent, not the glory, but a glory of Advent, is that God came to earth to reside with us, among us, and His glory was in His present in and through us as we live in obedience, calling Him Lord. If God only came to secure our eternity, it would be a gift of unspeakable magnitude. But being the loving creator, he was moved to also give us life, capital L-I-F-E, now. So his glory is in his presence and in the favor his presence brings while he is in our midst. Part and parcel of his favor are his edicts. We call them laws, specifically laws for life. And as soon as we call them laws, I think we have a tendency to kind of recoil a little bit from that. Not maybe literally, but just eh, laws. I'd rather talk about God's wisdom and counsel for life instead of his laws. But the fact of the matter is, spend some time with the psalmists and their reflections, specifically on the law. Go to Psalm 119, just that one psalm, and just read that long, long psalm. It's all about, Lord, how lovely, how wonderful, how awesome is your laws. I meditate on it day and night. It's just this and that. It's good for its positives. I love it. It's, law is not a bad thing. It is a merciful, an awesome thing, and a gift from a loving creator. And he gave us those laws for life to give us life now, enabling us to navigate what he knows is a horribly broken world to the end that it might be perfect. No, that's yet to come. But that it might be less horrible. But why can the world be so horrible even then for those who believe? Because commandments given by God were and are rejected with reckless abandon even by those who say they believe. Is this not true of you? It is certainly true of me. But God gave ten. But if he had only given one, the first one, if he had only given that first commandment, it would have been sufficient because it's all-encompassing. Hear now the word of the Lord, church. First commandment out of Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. As you read the scriptures, allowing the scripture to interpret the scripture, which is the way we understand the Bible properly, we see that God's there isn't referring only or even primarily, once you understand the whole counsel of God's word, to some kind of little, little, little statue or figurine or a, a totem pole or a volcano that you worship that 
it, it refers to anything that is placed above God in actuality, not in what we say, but in actuality in every aspect of our lives, there is nothing that takes precedent over God Almighty. And as soon as something does, and it does for all of us, come on. And as soon as it does, though, now we have a God that we have placed before God Almighty. And if we stay in that place, the discipline becomes stronger and stronger until we wake up and we repent and we put God back on that throne. You shall have no other gods before me. Two verses later, he qualifies or expands that one command. In verse 5 of Exodus 20, he says, You shall not worship them, referring to those gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Wait, wait, what do you mean jealous God? I thought God was perfect. How can je- See, we think of jealousy just automatically as, that. well, that's obviously got to be sin. Our jealousy frequently, more often than not, probably is sin. Because jealousy is having a craving desire for that which is not rightly ours. Ah, it is godly for a husband to be jealous for his wife. It is godly for a wife to be jealous for her husband. It is not godly of me to be jealous of Connor Payne's swing. Do you see? I mean, it's stupid, I know, but... All right, you see that? Although I understand he likes my swing quite well. That was just me saying that. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Well, we say, well, we, I don't hate God. I mean, you know, even what, okay, wait, we're talking now in, in stringent theological definitions here. So given the context of what it means to have a God in the first place that is not God, It means to put him, or it, I should say, whatever it is, above God Almighty. And when we do that, we are, by definition, hating God. Because we are dethroning him. We are saying, by action, less than who he is, and diminishing him. Which is to, by definition, hate him. So you see, this is pertaining to to every one of us, to one degree or another, at one time or another, or times or others in our lives, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. There are repercussions on subsequent generations. There isn't a person in here who doesn't understand that. Some have had great parenting and great parents and loving parents. I consider my parents to have been very, very loving parents. They were also very flawed And I learned some things by the negative examples of my father and did not repeat them. But that's not the norm. We tend to repeat the cycles of dysfunction and sin with which we grew up with. We tend to repeat those things. And God says, yeah, and you know what? We can keep tracing that back. 
And that's why when I'm in counseling with people talking about these cyclical kinds of sins or generational sins that have been going on in the families forever, it's like you have the ability and the power through Christ to break that cycle at any time when you put him on his throne. That's one of the things he wants to do. So you see, it's not like he is laying the sins of the father on the son because Old Testamentally it says that sons shall not be put to death for their fathers nor fathers be put to death for their sons. I'm bringing a lot of big theology in here. The most horrific example of making something or someone a God above God Almighty comes very, very, very early in the Bible. In fact, only two chapters into the Word. In Adam and Eve, in the garden, in their direct rejection of God's assessment of what is good and what is right and what is true, they defiantly exchanged the law of God for a law unto themselves that they made up for themselves. God said, don't eat that. Eve said, yeah, whatever. And in that singular decision which ruined the entire order of the world forever until he comes again, Adam and Eve determined to set aside God's perfect guidance for a guidance determined for and by themselves. That is, to dethrone God and put themselves in God's place. In that instant that they did that, there was no longer one overarching authoritative capital T truth for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Eve determined her assessment of God's loving wisdom for thriving in the garden was somehow faulty. It was inadequate and oh boy was it stifling thereby crafting her own truth, determining what was good and true and right. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman, when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and when she saw that it was a delight to her eyes, and when she saw that the tree was desirable to make her wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. The Lord said, don't. Do this. It will not bring you joy. It will not improve your life. Trust me. And they said, nah. But Eve could not fathom somehow how something so beautiful and delectable and inviting could be bad for you. And the tempter just happened to be there to affirm her in her quest for godhood. Now, she wasn't thinking in those terms. Well, I'm going to make myself God. But that's exactly what she did and what every one of us does whenever we say, eh, yeah, God, nah, I don't think I'm going to do it my way. Anytime we exchange God's perfect judgments and ways for our flawed judgments and ways, we are elevating ourselves to the place of God. The spiritual collapse that results 
results in civic collapse and calamity follows. We're going broader still. In our state and municipality, current events, we are experiencing institutionalized, publicly funded child abuse in our public schools, mandating acceptance, accommodation, and encouragement and instruction for all things perverse. This past week, the Portland School Board just pronounced their edicts, which happened to violate Maine state law, but let's not ever let that preclude anything we want to do. Those laws are the laws which protect the rights of people who cannot in clear conscience follow such perverse mandates. But more important by far are that they violate the inspired, infallible wisdom of God. When Emmanuel is no longer with us, symbols become irrelevant. We know that in the past several days and weeks that people in high places or places of authority are dropping like flies in a winter cold snap, being found to have forced their deeply held personal moral convictions on women who do not share the same moral convictions. I'm choosing my wording precisely. But you see, therein lies the problem of self-determination, meaning... I'll decide what's right for myself. To know thyself and to thine own self be true. Yeah, that comes right out of the pit of hell. Eve was absolutely faithful to that dictum. See how that worked out for us. Thank you, Eve and Adam. Relative truth, which is what we are living amongst today. It's truth determined by what I judge to be right for me. And relative truth is impossible for a reasonable, much less peaceful coexistence with each other. When I see your car unlocked one day and I see that the keys are laying in there, you know what? In my moral view, what's that? What's that? What's that silly little saying? Uh, possession is nine tenths of the law. It's that tenth that'll get you. But, but play along with me here. So, in my moral judgment, it's fair game. That car is fair game. If you're stupid enough to leave your car unlocked and leave the key in it, then hey, that's my moral view. But here you are now whining that I stole your car. But see, that's your moral judgment. Of my action. You're trying to impose your morals on me. Being consistent to self-determination. You cannot ever tell me that I cannot judge you. Because in doing so, you are judging me. You cannot ever say, you can't do this. You can't act that way because you are then imposing your convictions and morals on me. But even in my saying what I just said, I just imposed my moral convictions on you. It doesn't work. Someone's morals will always be imposed on others. But when no one's morals are wrong, according 
to the gods of self-determination, any semblance of life abundant that Jesus was referring to is impossible. Why? Because ich abad. No glory, literally. The glory has departed. So this idea that truth is a construct, meaning it isn't absolute, it isn't unchanging, it isn't determined the same way we decide, or excuse me, it is determined the way that we decide, well, what constitutes good music or good art or good fashion depends on the one who's listening, viewing, or wearing. But that simply is not compatible with life. Sooner than later, absolute truth will insert itself devouring the moral counterfeits from the pit of hell. And God said that is why there is one and only one truth determiner, and it isn't you or me or a king or a queen or a nation, or a government, or an army. There is only one. Thus says the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God is clear. The book whose name means the second law, not as if there's another law being given. It actually means, is referring to the second now restatement of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, with with elaboration. It says in Deuteronomy 30, toward the end of the book, verse 19, So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Now you hear that thrown out there, especially by the pro-life movement. I get why they do that. I get the whole choose life thing. But it is so devoid of the context here. So I'm going to give you the context here. Right before the verses leading right up to verse 19, let me read it. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us or to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But what the, but the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and may multiply and that the Lord God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But, but, if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Now here it is. So choose life in order that you may live and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days. I've gone from the particular to the broad, and now we're coming right back down to the particular. Eli, the high priest, is dead. Hophni, his reprobate son, is dead. 
Phineas, his other reprobate son, is dead because they all chose death. By definition of the Deuteronomos, they chose disobedience to the God on high rather than life with a capital L from obedience. And now Phineas' wife dies in childbirth hearing the news of her family's death. But before she goes, she names her baby Ichabod. No glory. The glory has departed. And in case we miss it the first time, it is immediately repeated. The glory of God has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. You see, the separation of the ark from God's people was a symbolic representation that God himself was separated from them. It meant that God's watch care of them, God's keeping of them, God's protection of them, God's favorable consideration towards them was also gone. Meaning they were on their own. And if you remember a few weeks back, I said something to the effect of the worst thing that God can do to us in our lives is to give us what we want. This craving for self-determination has never worked throughout the history of mankind, and it never will. God already tells us why in Deuteronomy 13. Life is to be found in obedience to the king of the universe. That is why we are told again, the good and the bad, starting with the good in Second Chronicles 16, I'm almost done, where the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Oh, that is such an awesome prosperity verse. And it is. But it's not the whole verse. Let me read the rest of it. But you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Yeah, but that's not going to make my book fly off the shelf. Obey me and live. Disobey me and die. The long and short of it. I know we are so accustomed to viewing discipline for all kinds of reasons as being negative and painful, and it's all that. But when it's administered by the perfect Father in heaven, it is always loving. It is always merciful. And it is always with the desire of calling his people back into his lap. So that not just a symbol of his presence or purpose in your life is there, but that he actually is there now, taking thought for you, concern for you, and taking up your causes as they reflect his causes. That's where we want to be, always and forever. Whew, I need to take a drink. This is heavy stuff, okay? And honestly, I could come and give you bubblegum sermons week after week. But I will stand before God. (laughs) I see him. (laughs) Blowing this great big bubble. And boom! And he goes, you know what that is, Cripe? (laughs) 
that's what the sum of all your teaching has been for your whole life. <laughs> With about as much effect. That's not what we want. We want Emmanuel. Not trappings, not reminders, not symbols, but we want Emmanuel, who is with us by His abiding presence in the Holy Spirit. And He truly never does leave in the way He did in the Old Testament. But oh, He will put tape over His own mouth when we go wayward, and He will be silent. And He will let the heartache come and the pain come until we say, God... I am so sorry. I turn from my evil way. I put you back on your throne. And I am here for you. I'm going to have Paul Halley come on up. Let us stand. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the word Pastor Bill shared with us this morning, Lord. How needy we are, Lord, and yet uh, we just keep running away from you until the point where we are penned in and there is no other way. We turn to you, Lord, for relief. And so, Lord, I just pray that today that uh, you would help us to realize that we are in need but you are there, Lord, because you have come to save us from ourselves, Lord. You gave us our Savior, Jesus Christ, to be our the sacrifice for what we deserve. And, Lord, uh, just out of that uh, glory that you have done for us, Lord, we give ourselves to you. And uh, we just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us every day so that we may walk in your ways. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.